Bean Tom's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey guys, thanks for returning to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call at Impact. And if I can't help you personally, I can certainly direct you to the proper individual or agency. All right, guys, we have a big episode today, and I want to get right to it. The subject matter for our episode today is the New Bedford Highway serial killings of the late 1980s. 1988, it started in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I was lucky enough to score an interview with a reporter named Maureen Boyle. Maureen was a reporter at the New Bedford Standard Times during this time frame, and she covered the crime beat for the New Bedford Fall River area. She got to know the players and the suspects in this case quite well. So she was an expert in this case, and then she went on to write a book about it. The book is called Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer by Maureen Boyle. I've read this book, and it's fantastic. It's an amazing account of the case. She really does a great job in humanizing the victims and the police in this case. They call them the New Bedford Highway Serial Killings, but... It was really regional. Bodies were found in New Bedford, Marion, Fairhaven, all over the place in that Route 140 corridor by New Bedford. And this case was horrible. This guy was killing people at a rate we had never seen before, especially in Massachusetts. There were several problems in this case because forensics was just at a different place. And that summer of 1988 was exceptionally hot, so it altered the body's decomposition. So the police originally thought that the victims were there longer than they were. And these women lived transient lifestyles, so an exact date of disappearance was difficult to ascertain in most cases. And sometimes they were never reported missing. They were just found by the side of the road here, so it was definitely a tragedy all around. I hate to disparage the victims in this case, but there was some element of prostitution. New Bedford was a hard city to live in if you weren't working properly, and that affected a lot of people in the area. So at times, women in the lower economic threshold would dabble in prostitution. All of the victims were also addicted to heroin and a partying lifestyle. So. Quite honestly, they'd go missing for days, but they'd be on a bender and they'd return. So the families weren't always running to the police every time the victims were gone for a few days. With the recent advancements in DNA, I thought this case would be solved pretty quickly as the technology progressed, but that hasn't been the case. And it makes me wonder if there's any available suspect DNA on the bodies or in evidence taken from the bodies. Back in those days, you really needed a large swath of DNA to be tested, and the testing methods frequently destroyed the sample, so it was difficult, and I think the DNA process still is. In this interview with Maureen Boyle, we discussed 
the possible perpetrators. There's two main suspects in this case, Kenneth Pont, a former attorney in the New Bedford area, and Anthony DeGrazia. However, I should note that there were more suspects and this case has never been solved. So let's get right to this interview and I'll touch base with you again before we leave for the day, okay? All right, here's the interview. Maureen Boyle, Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer. And it's available on Amazon and bookstores everywhere. Maureen Boyle, welcome to Boston Confidential. Thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. All right, you're our 12th guest, and I appreciate you giving me this time. You've not just finished and published the book, but you finished it, was it 2017? 2017, September 2017, the book came out. Okay, and it is Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer. Yes. And we have to jump into the time machine back to when you were a reporter with the New Bedford Standard Times, correct? Yes, it's a, quite a jump. <laughs> it, does, it seems like yesterday, and it seems like it's a lifetime ago, of course. Yeah. So but, let me ask you, what was New Bedford like in the late 1980s? I know most of the United States was going through a crack cocaine epidemic, but I think New Bedford was kind of mixed heroin, crack. It was kind of a tough time. What's interesting about New Bedford, you know, New Bedford had had a heroin problem for a number of years, even prior to the 1980s, you know, going into the 60s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Crack cocaine never took hold in New Bedford. Regular coke and people snorting coke did, particularly among some of the professionals. But crack cocaine never did. An odd little aside, there was one crack cocaine dealer from Rhode Island, who tried to set up shop in New Bedford, and he wound up dead. Someone came by and shot him. There was a really strong effort, may not be the right word, but crack was not in New Bedford. For whatever reason, it was not allowed by the drug powers that be. Right. Kind of like a Whitey Bulger situation in South Boston. He didn't allow heroin because he dominated cocaine. Yeah, something like that. Not for um, any altruistic reasons. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it was an awful lot of uh, heroin dealers. And during the 80s, that's when there was a lot of Colombians and Dominicans were removing a lot of heroin in the city. I didn't know that that was that connection. They were bringing it in from New York, not by boat, but by par. Right. People were coming in from there and, right. and they were setting up shop. It was a business. Right. And... In the 80s, the shipping industry, fishing and all that was still pretty alive in New Bedford, correct? Yes. Then, as in today, the fishing industry, it's a major main industry in the city. So it was still thriving at that time. And it's still a very strong uh, presence in the city. But it, it's, a, it's a really hard industry. Right. It breeds hard people. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. It's a difficult job. Right. Right. Is New Bedford doing any better today than it was in the late 1980s? Oh, it's doing so much better. I think anyone who had last visited New Bedford in the 1980s will be really surprised if they go down there right. now. The COVID issue aside, I mean, all the cities are taking a hit with that. But 
The downtown is uh, completely revitalized. So is the waterfront. The Fort Tabor area has all been redone. People can walk along the Hurricane Dyke. I think it's an underrated city, but it's a really beautiful city. Right. And and the people in New Bedford, you know, I have a very soft spot for everyone that's in New Bedford because it's just such a lovely city with a lot of lovely people who have gone through, some of them have gone through very hard times, but they don't let it get them down. Very resilient. I guess you'd have to be, if you're involved with the sea, you'd have to be very resilient, right? Yes. All right. So this all begins July 1988. Deborah Medeiros was found. And I know around the same time, one of the characters in this case, Kenneth Pont, was arrested for threatening somebody with a gun. Yes. Just prior to that. But Miss Medeiros was found July 3rd, 88. Yeah, I can take you through the four corners of it. People realized that the start of the quote unquote serial killing case started in July of 88, the beginning of July of 88 when Deborah Medeiros' remains were found off of Route 140 in Freetown, northbound. That was by a woman who was driving along. And, you know, in 1988, Route 140 and the Freetown, Lakeville area, very, very quiet. There wasn't a lot of traffic. Today, there's much more traffic. But there, there was nothing off of the highway. The woman was going north, and she had to use the bathroom. And there was nothing. If you got off the highway, there was nothing there. So she pulled to the side of the road and started walking down a little path. And she stumbled upon the remains of what well, turned out to be Deborah Medeiros. Deborah was, was not identified until much, much later, as an aside. A few weeks later, two men on motorcycles on a Sunday, they were going westbound on 195 in Dartmouth. And they also had to use the facilities. And they pulled over to the side of the road and started walking into the brush and found, stumbled upon the remains of what turned out to be another woman that turned out to be Nancy Piva. She had disappeared a few weeks earlier. However, her remains were largely skeletal at that time because that was a very, very hot summer. So, you know, without going into some of the gruesome details, she wasn't identifiable. Right. And the police officers at the time, state police officers, some of them who had responded to the first case, recognized that the cases seemed a little bit similar. You know, how often do you find two women along the side of the road dead? It stayed sort of dormant for a little bit because they could not identify the women at that time. Think back to 1988, and you have to go back in time. Now, you can't compare the police techniques then with today, right. uh, DNA was not widely used. They didn't have extensive databases. There wasn't a really inclusive fingerprint database. There wasn't even a really good missing persons database. A lot of it they had to hand sort, and they could not find anyone who matched the description of the two missing women at that time. And part of it had to do with the condition of the bodies. Uh, The medical examiner at that time told police that the woman had been out there for quite some time. Deborah Medeiros, they said she had been there likely before the start of winter. Right. So they focused the missing persons reports during that time period. And for Nancy Piva, 
that was the second woman that was uh, found. Again, they were told that she had been out there for months, when in fact, she'd only been out there for a couple of weeks. That's how decomposed her remains were. Oh, yeah. So you had two women dead, but there wasn't a big alert that, oh my goodness, we have a serial killer out there until a New Bedford detective started noticing that there was a number of missing persons reports of women that dated back to April. And he noticed it in going into September. And he brought his concerns to the district attorney's office. And that's when things really started moving. They brought in some search dogs and that's when they started discovering more and more bodies. Right. I don't want to disparage the victims in any ways, but there were some commonalities among them. And some of that was, they weren't always full-time street walkers. They were just living a very hard life. Is that right, Maureen? Yes. All of them were heroin addicts. That was really the common denominator. I mean, you know, some of the women were working the streets, but not all of them. And you have to remember that women at that time, if they had a really bad a heroin addiction, that's what they would do to get money. There wasn't a lot of treatment programs, particularly for women at that time, for whatever reason. There was some thinking at that time that, oh, no, women weren't, weren't addicts, even though that, that's just not true. Right. There were many more beds for men at that time. But all of the women had addiction issues, and right. that was really the unifying force amongst them all. Most of them did know each other, but I liken that to, you know, if you're an addict in a small city, you are going to know other addicts, just like cops know cops and nurses know nurses and teachers know teachers and reporters know reporters and writers know writers. It's, you know. The heroin would bring them almost like a nexus to Weld Square, correct? Where there were a lot of bars at the time. Well, Weld Square a lot of people were selling on Weld Square, and they were also selling in the South End. So there were two distinct areas where street sales were going on. One was in the Weld Square area. Another one was the South End of New Bedford in a particular part. And there was a couple of the bars that people were selling out of the bars. Right. So bodies keep, I don't want to say piling up, but up until April of 89. Yes, I know that some may be linked and some say they're not, So, but they give a a figure of 11, I think. Yeah, 11 women went missing between roughly March of 88 and September of 88. And nine of the missing women, their bodies were found between July of 88 and April of 89. So those that had an active memory of the case, you know, readers of newspapers and television, there is that sense that The killer was active for a much longer period of time, but really it was a really short period, but it took longer to find the women and identify them because most of the women were not identified in the first batch that were found, were not identified until December of 1988. The last woman who went missing was the first woman to be identified. And that was one of the problems the police ran into, the disappearances And the discoveries often overlapped victim by victim almost. So it was hard to know when somebody officially disappeared to when they had been discovered. I mean, we know when they discovered, but 
there was a lot of overlap between the victims. Yes, there was. And that was very, very difficult. And even in some cases, the victims weren't reported missing right away. So that made the timeline much more difficult too. The number of the women were reported missing almost immediately because New Bedford is a small town. That's a city. That's the type of place it is with very large families. And the families are pretty close knit. Even if there's a family member has substance abuse issues, people still keep track of each other. Sure. So they did report the missing pretty quickly for 1980s timeframe. But, you know, where do you look? And the last people that last saw them, their memories were kind of fuzzy too. You know, they would be able to give times of, well, I saw her on the day that I had a court appearance, or I remember it was Mother's Day because my kid called me or something like that. Right. In reading your book, one thing that the police in this investigation cannot be accused of is being lazy. They've worked this case 10 ways to Sunday uh, from what I've read in your book. They did. And we have to remember they were doing this in a time when they weren't using computers. It's almost ancient history. Yes. Isn't. Yeah. And people today that are younger will say, well, you know, you just do a search of the records. And there was no search of records. The amount of space, computer space, if you will, in our phones is more than what the storage in the computers that they were using at that time, which is, you know, kind of hard to believe. But they fingerprints were still kept manually on cards in a file cabinet. Uh, yes. They were only starting to computerize them. And they had pilot projects throughout the state. And that's why. One of the, the last victim who went missing wound up being the first person to be found because her prints were in the system at another department elsewhere in the state that was part of the pilot program in Rhode Island. You know, and New Bedford wasn't part of that pilot program and neither was Fall River. It's hard to describe to people how ancient it really was when that's all you've dealt with is computers and DNA. Yes. And I was very surprised when. Uh, a couple of members of law enforcement said not everyone was fingerprinted at that time. Okay. There were some prostitutes or people on the street, they weren't always fingerprinted. So, <laughs> And the prints could be messy too. They weren't always all that good because they were doing them manually and you know they'd get smeared and smushed and, and lost. So in this case, the DA forms a task force and they seem to be very competent investigators. They're in the bars. They're working informants. They seem to know right away that that's how this case was going to be solved. Who was with these victims last? Yes. And tie them together. But in most cases, there's too few suspects. In this case, maybe there's too many because of the lifestyle. Well, and also that's what I found the most frightening, that after a period of time, you start thinking, oh my God, it could be anyone. It could be someone that you're out to lunch and you look at another table and that could be the killer. They looked at so many people that were on a suspect list because either they had frequented some of the bars or they had frequented prostitutes or they had a history of assault or a history of rape or 
they were just very weird. And then the phone calls were coming in from people dropping names about, you know, this person is odd and that person is odd. And some of them were even, you know, ex-wives or ex-girlfriends or grudges, right? Yes. Yes. And some of them even to this day will say that, you know, so-and-so is the killer and it's possible. Right. That's what's so frightening. It is possible. When they looked at the number of sex offenders that were at that time out on the street who had been furloughed, you know, we think of furloughs for those in Massachusetts uh, back in the Dukakis days of, you know, the first degree murderers who had been furloughed. And people don't realize that the sex offenders who were at the Center for the Sexually Dangerous during that same period of time, they were also furloughed. Because there was that philosophy, these people were going to be going back into the community. So you have to reacquaint them with the community as part of their quote unquote treatment. And there was one sex offender who had once posed as a cop who was out from Monday through Friday during the week and would only spend the weekends at the treatment center. So the task force goes about their business and kind of quickly comes upon attorney Kenneth Pont. Yes. And it's kind of a strange connection. In your book, you describe him as kind of an oddball. He had had a heroin problem before going to law school and taking the bar. Is that correct? Yes. When he was a, a teenager, he developed a heroin addiction. He was arrested, charged with possession of heroin convicted. And then he turned his life around, if you will. He got clean, got his undergraduate degree, went to law school, passed the bar, but he couldn't become a lawyer until his record, his conviction was expunged and eventually was. So he would have been like, oh, this is someone who has really turned his life around. He has beaten the addiction. However, those that are familiar with addiction it is a lifelong battle and, you know, people get clean, but they, they are never quite letting down their guard. They're always not struggling, but they know what triggers and they don't want to go down that path again. With Kenny, he unfortunately began using cocaine and became addicted to cocaine and was injecting cocaine. He would pick up girls that he knew on the street from his heroin days and bring them to his house and have them buy coke for him and have them inject him with heroin. He would lock him in the house and they would party until all of the coke was gone and then the girls would try to escape. Right. And and law enforcement was very much aware of him because one of the victims in the case had been staying with him for a period of time and she had been seen with him. He had pulled a gun on a guy in April of 88 who when the victims claimed had sexually assaulted her. So Kenny went out and saw the guy, pulled a gun on him. That was the allegation. So a New Bedford detective by the name of John Dextrader was investigating it and was pursuing charges against Kenny. And then Rochelle, who is the victim, disappeared. Right. And he was very concerned about that and was wondering, you know, did something happen to her? Right. One of the reasons why Ken Pont was on the radar pretty early on, right. uh, plus he was very odd. He was very odd. 
the stories that I outline in the book that the girls had told were pretty right. bizarre. Right. Uh, to call Ken Pond a strange character would be minimizing it, I think, correct? Uh, yes, most definitely, most definitely. So when they couldn't find Rochelle, he became, you know, someone they wanted to initially talk to. And then he moved to Florida. And the timing of his move to Florida was suspect because it was right after the last known victim disappeared. Right. He moved shortly after there were news reports that were tying all the disappearances together. Right. So soon after that, he moved. Some of his friends would later say he had always planned to move to Florida. It just had gotten delayed. He had gone down there and had bought a house. So there was nothing, you know, hurried about his move. Right. But it did raise a lot of questions amongst law enforcement. And when the cops came, investigators came calling him or, you know, asking him right. about the victims, he was very cagey and very coy because he was a lawyer they didn't feel he was being very truthful to them. He really didn't do himself any favors in his interactions with the police. Like you say, he was shooting up cocaine at the time. The only real physical evidence against Punt is, well, there's no physical evidence. He just, he's kind of tied to these women on different levels. Is that right? Yes, yes. He knew all of the women, which isn't unusual, especially if you're in a small city. You know, everyone knows everyone or knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. But he, he knew them all, either personally or through his drug addiction, and then he disappeared afterwards, right. in afterwards. And he wasn't being cooperative. That was the major red flag. He was not being cooperative. Right. There's another suspect in this case, DeGrazia. He was actually quite violent with women in New Bedford and Fall River, I believe. Is that right? Most of the cases involved New Bedford. He lived in uh, Freetown and Lakeville. Right. He had two earlier rape cases that he was acquitted of years before this. And his name came up during the investigation when a number of women reported and described a man who was picking them up, grabbing them by the throat and choking them in some cases until they were nearly unconscious. Multiple women. Same story, basically. And raping them. Right. And he had very distinctive features. He had a broken nose, so it was flat, almost like they described it like a boxer's nose. Right. That's um, a perfect description. The pictures in your book, he's a boxer, no doubt. Yeah, but that's the nose. It was from right. years of child abuse or allegations of child abuse. And that's how his nose got broken. At, at um, what time did this coincide? I know Kenneth Pont was indicted in like 1990. When did the DeGrazia interest begin? Did, was it at the same time? The interest in DeGrazia was in about 1990. Right. Because there were separate cases involving him. So in 1990s, when 89, 90, he was being investigated in the case and faced a number of charges. And then he was out on bail for one string of rape charges when another woman came forward. Right. Uh, she was raped one night and ran screaming from the vehicle, right. and they were able to track the vehicle to him. He was looking like a serial rapist all the way through, so 
it's strange how they both coincide, Pont and this guy. Pont's not really violent towards women, but he's super strange. Guy is legitimately hurtful to them. Yes. And there was also a number of other suspects who were didn't garner the same headlines, but there was several other suspects who were charged with rape during that period of time because they were attacking women. Right. But they could not tie them to the killings. So Mr. DeGrazia came to a relatively quick end during this investigation. He committed suicide at his girlfriend's... Parents, his ex-girlfriend. His ex-girlfriend was engaged to someone else. Right. And he was charged with another rape. Right. And things were not looking good for him because the last rape case was very, very strong. One of the victim's relatives was also a judge and and they had very strong evidence. So he went to the ex-girlfriend's parents' house and went into the backyard and overdosed with some of his prescription drugs. Right. What's interesting is he committed suicide right after the new district attorney Uh, Paul Walsh, he had beaten Ron Pina, who had been the district attorney prior to that. The district attorney said, well, most likely uh, we're going to be dropping the charges against Ken Pont. Ken Pont had been indicted at one point for one of the murders, and they were dropping charges against him. And there was some people who thought, well, he killed himself because he thought he was going to be next. But whether that's true or not, only he knows. Right. At a minimum, he was a tortured soul. Yes. In terms of evidence, is it possible that there is no DNA on file of uh, suspect DNA? Because you would have had DNA from DeGrazia and Pont, and if not them, their families. We have to remember in 1988, DNA sampling was very, very different than what it is today. Today, a bit of sweat, you can get DNA off of it. Right. Back then, you really needed large amounts of the material to test. And very often, the material was just destroyed in the testing process. Right. Uh, so the whole testing process was very, very different then. Right. And anything that could have been found could have been denigrated over the period of time when the bodies were out there for months in the element. Right. So... Because it's still an active case, investigators and district attorney's office are very, very careful in either saying that there is DNA or there isn't DNA. Right. Do you think this case is, is solvable? Yes. How do you think that goes down? It, it's, it's Monday morning and New Bedford Times is on your front porch. What does it say? These days, the case is a, a memory in New Bedford. but. It would be when the killer is identified, and I'm not going to say charged because the killer could be dead. Right. Uh, When the killer is identified, it will say it's over. Yeah. Or justice, sort of. Yeah. I don't know what it is about this case where it doesn't really garner the attention of some other serial cases. These were brutal and diabolical and it just doesn't seem to grab the attention of the country i think it has in new england but nationwide it it seems to get a good leaving alone no i agree with you on that i definitely agree with you on that part of it i think is the timing of when this happened 
back in 88, we didn't have the internet. It wasn't social media. So it wasn't in people's faces. It was very much a regional story. There were some national pieces in newspapers and on television at that time, but it wasn't a a, a sexy story. You know, it didn't have a, a sexy link to it. It was a sad, sad and very tragic story, but right. no one seemed to just grab onto it. Right. Strange. If you had to choose, could I get you to choose between Grazia and Pont? One more likely than the other, or can I not bait you into that? You can't bait me into that. Because one of the reasons are, what if it's neither of them? No, I know. What if it's someone else and they're sitting back laughing at us all because they got away with it? Hey, guys. All right, we're back. That was actually the end of the interview. Sorry about it being so abrupt. But I was fascinated with the fact that Maureen believes that this will basically be solved, you know, through human intelligence rather than DNA. That also kind of leads me to believe that suspect DNA may not be available in this case. But I do believe Maureen is right, and somebody knows what happened, either the perpetrator or somebody around the perpetrator. And there was this interesting study that I came up with when I read the book, Who Took Molly? by Dr. Stein, and is something called the Keppel Study. And cold cases, to 95% certainty, the perpetrator could be found in the original police reports from the first 30 days. I'm sure the police have done this a thousand times over. I just want justice for these families, and they shouldn't have to wait much longer. I also just want to say thank you to Maureen. I did in an email after our interview ended, but Maureen, thank you so much for blessing Boston Confidential with your presence. It was an excellent interview, and it was a great book. So. Go out and buy Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer by Maureen Boyle. I got mine off of Amazon, but you can get yours wherever great books are sold. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. I got a couple great episodes coming up. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And please go check out the book. It was excellent. Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer. All right, till next time, guys. Talk to you soon.